a wonderful family. So, hey, we are starting a new series on the Beatitudes. We're calling it The Good Life, right? And this idea of looking past the good stuff to meet the God who is good. And uh, how many of you uh, wouldn't mind or want the good stuff in life? Anybody? Some of you actually have a good, a good Life t-shirt. I know there's a company called The Good Life, right? And, uh, and so uh, we all want The Good Life, don't we? Uh, I want a boat on a lake. I want Uber Eats to deliver every one of my meals and not charge me a dime. Anybody else? Right? Like, uh, we all want The Good Life. And we actually live in a world uh, where every human being wants the good life. In fact, every political party, every religion, every ideology, Oprah, Ellen, Dr. Phil, you know, all of the advertisers that you see on TV or Instagram or TikTok, right? Like, they are all pushing their version of the good life, aren't they? In fact, uh, advertisers have figured out that they want to, they don't come out necessarily and say the good life, but what they're pitching to you is the product that they're selling or the service that they're providing is the key to a good life. And the reason why is because every single human being asks two critical questions. And the first question that they ask is, what is the good life? What is that life of meaning, that life of peace, right? That life of, of just a happiness, of joy and deep delight. What is it? And the second question that every human being asks is, who's going to help me get there? How do I get it? How do we get the good life? Well, the series of talks that we're going to do over the summer are rooted in uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, um, and specifically rooted in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are kind of a summary of this sermon. It's considered like Jesus's kind of preaching, you know, kind of little preaching tour that he does where he's kind of revealing what is the kingdom of God and what is the blessed life? What does it look like for me as a follower of Jesus to live in this story that Jesus has come to reveal to us and re-reveal actually to humanity? And so the Beatitudes are kind of a summary um, and the introduction to what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And specifically this summer, we're going to take a look at the Beatitudes, which is found in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. But what the Beatitudes are, the Beatitudes really define the disciples' identity and practice. In other words, those who are following Jesus, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like? Who am I? What is the good life? And so effectively what Jesus is doing through the Beatitudes is he's answering the question that every single human being is asking. And every political party and ideology and religion, all the marketing that takes place in our world is also trying to answer. And how many of you know that this story, you've heard me say this, we live out of God's story. We don't live out of the story of this world. We live out of the story that God reveals through the book called the Bible, right? And, and we, rev- we live out of that story, and that ought to shape how we live our lives. Now, Christianity in America, the church in America, is facing a little bit of an identity crisis. Because if you ask many Christians and those who don't attend church, those who kind of observe the church from the culture, what is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We get a whole host of answers, and many of those answers don't actually line up with what the Bible teaches us. 
Oftentimes you'll hear, well, I think you gotta believe a certain set of truths, right? Like there's a certain set of things you gotta believe, you know, like that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus came from heaven and he didn't sin and he died the death that we should have died. Like I, I think if we believe those things, then I'll get my golden ticket to heaven. And actually what's happened in America is that we have reduced Christianity down to some sort of believism. That if I just believe some things, then I'll get to heaven. That's what Christianity is. There are others that have defined Christianity as kind of a set of moral uh, absolutes. You know, it's kind of this is the way you live your life. There are moral standards that you ought to live up to. And so there's this kind of uh, practice or this kind of, you know, we got to measure up to these kinds of things. And, and many of us fail to measure up to whatever those moral standards happen to be. And so in America, we're, we're facing this challenge like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus. And what we discover is that, that in modern culture, Christianity is oftentimes defined by secondary kind of cultural issues rather than our primary allegiance to Jesus. Christianity is about my allegiance, my fidelity, my faithfulness to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. That Jesus isn't just my Savior. Jesus is my Master. Jesus is my King. Jesus is my Lord. And it ought to order how I live my life. That theologians, they, they often use uh, two terms to describe what really, what is Christianity. And they use this, these two phrases, the orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Meaning that there are things that we ought to believe. That when we read through the Bible, God wants us to think rightly about this, the story that we're living out of. He wants us to understand who God is and how God functions and operates in the story that he's invited us to be a part of. And so we ought to believe those things. That's why Paul told Timothy, pay attention to your life and doctrine. It really is important what you and I believe the Bible to teach. But it's equally important that we put it into practice, orthopraxy. In fact, when the New Testament writers write about faith, they make the assumption that we will obey. Faith is not just me having a right set of beliefs, but then not putting it into practice. Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, is about me having a right set of beliefs, but then choosing to order and prioritize my life. In fact, this is what the early church did. In fact, the early church would gather. They would sing a hymn. They would declare their allegiance to Jesus above Caesar. And then they would commit to a certain way of life, a life of generosity, a life of taking care of the stranger and the poor. Those uh, infants that were uh, kind of left out or abandoned, they would gather them up and they would be generous. They would love and they would would care and they would be kind. Why? Because they were putting into practice the faith that had fundamentally transformed their lives. And this is why when you read the New Testament, and especially the writings of Peter, or sorry, Paul, what you discover is that Paul oftentimes, and you can read this, you go read Colossians or Galatians, you'll see Paul will deal with right thinking, right doctrine up front, and then you'll see this shift about halfway through the book, and you'll see him start to apply, how does that impact our lives? How does it impact how we live out this thing called life? Well, this is exactly what Jesus is doing with the Beatitudes. Jesus, in fact, the first four of the Beatitudes actually relate to how you and I, it's kind of the inner work or the inner man, how you and I ought to prioritize and order our heart and how we relate to God. And what you notice is that the second part of the second grouping of four really then have to do with how we live our life out amongst those, our, our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and family. 
orthodoxy, orthopraxy. It's not just belief. We've got to put this into practice. Faith assumes obedience. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he talks about the Beatitudes. Now, I've got two things I want to try to do today. One, I'm going to introduce the Beatitudes. I've already started doing that. Two, we're going to take a look at the first one. Do you believe I can get you out of here before four o'clock today? Good. I knew you wouldn't laugh at me. Oh, wait. But one of the things that we do when we read the Bible or when we read the Beatitudes is that we kind of frame it in our mind. We imagine it to be a certain way. And, and you might imagine a group of peasants, you know, who, you know, Jesus is dressed in a robe, not a bathrobe, by the way. That's just for Christmas, kids, pageants, all that stuff. But Jesus is dressed in a robe. Maybe he's got some sandals on, you know, and there's a whole bunch of peasants and it's a pretty agrarian culture and he's hanging out with a few close friends. And if we're not careful, what we can do is turn these moments Turn this dialogue, turn this teaching from Jesus into this monastic-type moment. Everything's calm. Everything's idyllic. It's kind of this contemplative moment. Jesus is just hanging out with a few friends, dropping a few tweetable truth bombs. I'm going to retweet that, Jesus. And, and, this is, and if we're not careful, we can kind of put it in that category. But that's not what was going on here. In fact, to understand the context of the Beatitudes and, and what Jesus was doing and the context within which he was delivering these truth bombs, if I can say it that way, is, is, is you have to turn over to Matthew chapter 4. And here's what we read in Matthew chapter 4. This is what is happening right before the Beatitudes take place. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. He says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities around Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region across the Jordan followed him. And so this moment where Jesus is about to kind of deliver kind of a treatise of the kingdom. You want to know what the good life is? You want to know what the kingdom's version of the good life is? You want to know who's going to help you and how you're going to live out this truth? How you're going to live out the good life? Jesus is about to deliver it, not to just a small group of disciples or friends, but there's a large crowd that's gathered. And, and by the way, these are people with fundamentally different ideologies, worldviews, beliefs, and expectations. And so this is a politically charged moment because there are people, Romans and Greeks and Jews. And then amongst the Jews, you've got the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Essenes and the Sadducees, right? And you've got all of these groups that are gathering because they're seeing the power of God. And this is a politically charged moment that is supernaturally infused with the presence and power of God. And it's into this culture, it's into this environment that Jesus takes a seat. And he begins to share. And what we recognize is that in that culture, when the rabbi would sit down, he was about to deliver truth. There was an authority. In fact, we still kind of use that, uh, that thought process uh, uh, in our modern day world because the chair of a department at a university, see that? The chair of a department in the university is the one who has authority for that department. And what we recognize is that the rabbi is about to sit down. Jesus, the rabbi, is about to sit down and he's about to deliver. What does it mean to be the good life? How do we get there? What does the kingdom have to say about this? 
And he's saying it not to a group of people who believe like he believes. He's speaking these words of truth into a chaotic, crazy, mixed up world with lots of different opinions and views as to what the good life is and how you get there. And Jesus begins to speak truth to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Jews. They want to find out the answer. And so Jesus, being the brilliant communicator that he is, uses this little word, in the English language we use it, blessed. Hashtag blessed. Went to Walmart and got a parking spot right by the door. Hashtag blessed. We've kind of cheapened the word, right? But this word that Jesus used would have caught his listeners' attention. Whether you were a Greek or a Jew or a Roman, in that setting, no matter what your worldview was, he used a word that was pregnant with meaning. He used a word that was kind of like, he's about to answer a question that I've been thinking about. In fact, Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, how do you define blessed, right? In a world that's gutted of its meaning. This is what Dallas Willard said. Makarios, if that's the right pronunciation, forgive my Greek, I have enough trouble with English being from Ireland. Anyway, Makarios refers to the highest type of well-being possible for human beings. But it also is the term, or the term the Greeks used for the kind of blissful existence characteristic of the gods. And so, point being, this is a deep and rich word that is catching their attention because he's about to answer the question that every single one of them is asking. What is the good life? What is the blessed life? What is that life that has favor? How do I get it? Who's going to help me? A guy by the name of Donald Hagner said it this way, rather than happiness in its mundane sense, it refers to the deep inner joy of those who have long awaited the salvation promised by God and who are now begin to experience its fulfillment. The Makarios are deeply and supremely happy. And so the word that Jesus uses here is a word that has great depth, great meaning to all of those different people that are listening. What is the good life? Where do I find that deep, abiding sense of joy, contentment, happiness? This is the question that humanity is asking, and it's the question that Jesus is about to answer. The reality is it's the question that we still ask, isn't it? You know, in 2000, there were, I think there were, uh, little research was like there were 50 books that were written uh, on Amazon that, that had the word happy in it. By 2008, that number was 4,000. How many of you would agree with me that's a trend? And after 4,050 books, at least, no one seems to have found the answer. And so this is the point that Jesus is trying to answer, is that if you want to know how to find the life you long for, I can give it to you. Yes, it's found in me. It's found in the kingdom of God. It's found in the will and the authority of God. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus wants us to understand where the good life truly comes from. Now, every four to eight years, we have a new administration in our country, and you know how this goes. It's now like a two-year, three-year cycle, right? Where, where you have politicians who show up making promises of what the good life's going to be. Then they implement policies for how they're going to get to the good life. And then they tell us the metrics that they use to tell us whether or not they're doing a good job ruling. And most of the time, they're telling us that they're doing a good job ruling, right? 
That's how the world or the country in which we live. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is showing up saying, let me talk to you about the promises of the kingdom. Let me talk to you about the values of the kingdom. Let me talk to you about how you as a human being are going to flourish and thrive. The only problem is when you read the Beatitudes, they're terrifying. Like, have you read the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn. But I like the whole pursuit of happiness thing. You know, that's much more my jam, right? And so when you read the Beatitudes, you're like, Jesus, what were you really up to? And this is what, you know, once again, this is Jesus is coming to deliver the treaties. This is what it means, the good life of the kingdom and how we get there. Now, we got to understand that in the same way that we have all of these different outlets in our culture that are offering us the good life and their version of the good life and their answer to the question, so did Jesus. And so some of the audiences that were there were the, the Pharisees, for example. Now, the, when you hear the Pharisees mentioned in church, you're supposed to go, boo, they're like the bad guys, you know? The Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they had this worldview, this ideology that the kingdom will come through adherence to the law and tradition. And so they were putting this burden on the religious, on the Jews, that, that you gotta measure up, you gotta live this out. And if you live it out perfectly, tithing even to the smallest degree on your little kind of mint plants that you have on your little windowsill in your kitchen, like if you'll do all of these little details, it's gonna get, you're gonna get the good life. You had the Sadducees, and these were the realists. These were the ones who look, look, Rome is here, let's just make a deal and get on with life. Which is why they were sad, you see. I need a cymbal player in there. The Essenes, right? The Essenes, these, these were a group of people that said, burn the whole thing down. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's just start over. And they moved out into the desert just to get away from everybody. And then last but not least, you had the zealots. And some of the disciples were zealots, right? These were the guys that were political revolution. Let's overthrow. And into this audience, Jesus speaks and says, this is what the good life is. And here's the problem. Jesus and Jesus' agenda didn't fit in with the worldview of the people that he was communicating with. He was confronting something in them that would fundamentally change their hearts and change the way they would live life. That's the way it works. These are contrarian values. They're contrarian values to the story of this world because the story of the kingdom of God is contrarian to the values of this world. And Jesus shows up and says, you want to know what the good life is? You want to understand how to live the good life? Let me tell you. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He said it this way, scripture does not present us with a moral code and then say, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will be well. Rather, the biblical way to tell a story and entail, the biblical way is to tell a story and in telling, invite. Live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. You see, God's story, God's plan, God's will, God's way, when he started the whole deal, God is the one that created you. God is the one that created this world. God is the one who has a plan and a purpose, a blueprint that actually allows you to thrive. But the world in which we live tries to tell us a different story. And you are invited into this story and to live out this story. And so Jesus shows up and he says, blessed, and this is found in verse three in the first beatitude. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus probably caught their attention with the word blessed, or you have to say blessed, because it's just way more spiritual, isn't it? It sounds way more better, way, way more better, like that's a word. <laughs> it just sounds way better to say blessed, you know, as opposed to blessed. So blessed, and they're like, we're listening. What is it? Are the poor in spirit. Ooh, I'm not so sure that I like that. What does that mean, Jesus? And what's interesting is that Jesus says, the poor in spirit, they're the ones that inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if you look at the Beatitudes, he actually bookmarks the first one and the last one are those who inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you're going to inherit this kingdom of God. You're going to inherit the purpose, the plan, the will of God. Like you and I are going to be a part of all of that. How do we do that? You got to be poor in spirit. Now, what does he mean when he says poor in spirit? Because oftentimes we read that, and when we think of poverty, you know, our mind naturally kind of goes to those who are materially poor. And the Bible sometimes seems to leave us with the impression that, that Jesus was disproportionately for the poor, and I do believe he is for the poor. But we have to be careful not to rule out the fact that Jesus is also for those who have resource. In fact, Many of the women, or many of the people that said the women it was that supported Jesus had resource. And because they had resource, they were supporting Jesus and allowing Jesus to do what Jesus was doing. Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who took care of Jesus' burial, right? He, he was a man of resource. So we recognize in the Bible that there are those who follow Jesus. So scholars will tell us, well, it can't be those then that are materialistically or materially poor. That's not what this means, that it's those who are materially poor who inherit the kingdom of God. The other thing that it doesn't mean is this, is this idea of self-loathing, that I'm a worm, I'm the worst, I'm, un, I'm unworthy, I'm a zero, right? The reality is that Jesus' death on your behalf shows that you are valuable to God. And sometimes in Christian circles, because of shame and guilt and these things that the devil tries to pile on us, we walk around like dragging our knuckles on the ground, you know, kind of, yeah, I'm a loser, I'm unworthy, I'm not, I'm a zero. And, and it's almost like a false humility, and that's not what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus isn't referring to the fact that you're a zero. And so there are two Greek, or well, there's a number of Greek words, but there are two Greek words primarily used for poor when you see it in the Gospels. And, and one of the words that's used was used of the widow who would put the two copper coins in, like, and, and so she would, you know, she had very little resource, but she comes and she puts two copper coins into the offering. And the, the word that's used for poor or poverty in that particular scenario literally means meager resources. And so you have this lady who has meager resources, but she has enough resources in her poverty that she's able to give something. She's able to offer something. But the other word that's used for poor, and, and that's the word that Jesus uses in, in this particular passage, literally means to be destitute or to be totally dependent on the mercy of another. In fact, the picture that's painted is of a beggar and we have homeless people, and you, you know, we've seen people you know, like panhandling and, in, in, and around on our streets. But, but the word that's used is not that kind of picture. That's not the picture that's painted. The picture that the word here that's used paints is a beggar who is bowed low on the ground, face in the dirt, one hand covering over their face because they're so ashamed and so embarrassed, and they recognize they've got nothing to give, and then another hand out looking for and receiving mercy from somebody else. 
It's a place of total and utter destitution. They have nothing to offer. In fact, they're totally dependent upon the mercy of another person for their very survival. That's the word Jesus uses here. And what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that we are a people who are spiritually destitute, that we are bankrupt and we have nothing that we bring to the table, but recognizing that we've got nothing to bring to the table, we recognize all that Jesus has brought for us on our behalf so that we could be forgiven and experience his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his long-suffering. D.A. Carson said it this way. He says, poverty of spirit then is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy by grace alone. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that while we were yet dead in our trespasses, it's God who comes after us. That we've got nothing to give. There's no good. There's not enough good things that I could do. In fact, the Bible says that my righteousness is as filthy rags. And what what Jesus is trying to help us who are followers of Jesus, disciples, wanting those who give fidelity and allegiance to Jesus above and beyond all else, what he wants us to understand is that the starting point, in fact, the point that we never really leave is the fact that, man, I am spiritually bankrupt. I got nothing to give. I'm completely at the mercy of another and this is what Jesus is wanting us to point, wanting us to understand. In fact, if you go back over to the Old Testament, we talked a lot about King David over the last five weeks. And King David wrote a psalm in Psalm 51 where he's reflecting upon the mercy of God, the goodness of God, in the context of his own sin. And, and Psalm 51 is a great passage for you to go read. You know, search me, O oh God, if there's any evil in me at all, you know, you know, show me, forgive me of my ways, and I will teach sinners your way because I recognize all that you have given me. And he ends Psalm 51 with this little phrase. It says that the sacrifice of God is a broken and a contrite heart. And that Hebrew word for contrite there literally means reduced to its lowest common denominator. A beggar, ashamed and hiding dependent upon the mercy of another. This is what Jesus wants us to understand. Is that to be poor in spirit, those who inherit the kingdom of God are fully, wholly, and completely dependent upon Jesus Christ, upon his mercy, upon his grace, upon his goodness. And the great enemy of that posture really is pride, because pride really does root itself. It's the root of our own independence, isn't it? Because as human beings, we we don't want to be in that posture. I don't want to be dependent upon anybody. I want to be independent. I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. I don't want to have to rely upon anybody else. I want to be able to take charge myself and be able to walk out life on my own terms. And in that sense, it's this choice of independence over dependence upon God. Remember the start of the story in Genesis 1 and 2 was that God created Adam and Eve and in them all of humanity and everything they could ever need or want to thrive and to flourish in life. The good life was found in him and in in their relationship with him. God provided everything that they ever needed. It's what Paul picks up on, and I think in Acts chapter 20, when he says it's in him that we live and move and have our being that we are completely and utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. 
His mercy, his grace, his goodness, his provision. And, and, and so Jesus is wanting us to live a life of dependence, not independence. But to win that battle, we've got to understand the pride, human pride, because of the sinful nature that we wrestle with day in and day out. How do we deal with this thing called pride? Dr. Derwin Gray said this. He said, pride is the mother of, sorry, that's a, I should be careful how I say that. Pride is the mother of all sin. Pride is the mother of all sin because it gives birth to every other sin. And Jesus, or God, has a few opinions about pride. You know, we always say, hey, God is love, you know, and he is. God is love, right? But God hates a few things. And one of the things that he hates is pride because pride is the mother of all other sin. All other sin finds its root in pride because pride leads us to independence from God. It leads us to trust ourselves and to put ourselves at the center of the kingdom of self. Look, look at these verses. It says this in Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. I don't know about you. Life is hard enough without there being some sort of distance between me and God. I want God in my world. I want to be in his story. I want to be in his space. I want to be in his world because I just know that even in the highs and lows of life, life's going to go much, much better if I'm with God and God is with me. And so to be prideful is to create distance from God. Look what it says in James 4, 6. God opposes the proud. That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? God, help me not to be proud. I don't want you to oppose me. I want to walk with you. I want to follow you. I want you to lead me and to guide me. Proverbs 8, 13. I hate pride and arrogance. Why does God hate pride and arrogance? Because it always leads us to trust self over God. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Pride is the great enemy of our hearts. And it's, it's the complete opposite of this, those who inherit the kingdom of God, those who are poor in spirit, those who are utterly dependent upon the mercy of another. Augustine said this, he said, pride makes the soul desert God to whom it should cling to as the source of life and to imagine itself instead as the source of its own life. And that's what pride does. It's why God hates pride. But it's also why God responds to the humility of the heart. And the reality is that you and I, we can't enter the kingdom of God when we're trying to be the king of our own kingdom. God wants to be in charge. God is Lord and master and king. And God wants us to trust and yield and depend upon him because he knows best. He provides best. And so how do you know what are the pride tells in your life? Like, how do you know? Uh, and, and this was especially fun for me to put together this week as I was going through this list, you know. This is the hard part about being a preacher. Can I just be honest with you? You know, the Lord deals with you in the closet as you're trying to put the sermon together so that you can stand up here with some sort of degree of integrity and go, I'm working on this, guys, you know. But, but there are some tells. There are some evidences that there's pride in our lives. Look, let's look at this list. It says this, not wanting to walk, uh, I can't see it. Oh, there it is. Not wanting to walk or spend time, or talk or spend time with someone because they just don't measure up. Thinking they should have asked me to do that, I would have done better. Anybody, 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 right? 
uh, waiting, oh, oh gosh, help me, Lord, waiting to turn the conversation to highlight something that you've done. Anybody ever been there? Right? Feeling, uh, uh, feeling a good report from somebody else threatens your worth. Hearing about another person's problems and feeling better about yourself because it hasn't happened to you. Come on, can we just be honest? Right? Little tale of pride in there, okay? Uh, hearing some, oh, let me see, trying to serve God without prayer, thinking pride isn't a big problem for you, not confessing sin unless you're backed into a corner and confronted. It looks down on others, doesn't listen well, it can be stubborn, it's not, it's not eager to learn because it's confident that it already knows. It's quick to admit wrong, or, or it's not quick to admit wrong because it fears that it may look bad and lose its position, uh, husbands and wives. Anybody, right? Uh, it's competitive, easily threatened. Pride is insecure. Pride finds it hard to rejoice in the success of others. We wrestle with pride, don't we? And pride really is the root. It's the mother, if I could say it that way, of all other sins. It gives birth to all other kinds of things. But Jesus comes and he says, hey, humility, poor in spirit, that's evidence of the poor in spirit. I love how Peter Kraft says it this way. He says, if we come to God with empty hands, he will fill them. Uh, if we come to him with full hands, he finds no place to put himself. It's our beggary, our receptivity that is our hope. In fact, the Bible tells us this, God gives grace to the humble. And it's this noble position that fo foregoes my status and recognizes my need of Jesus, and then sets me up to go and serve other people. Because it's no longer about me. It's no longer about my status. And isn't that who, when we read through the Bible, isn't that who Jesus uses? Moses, the meekest man ever to walk the planet. King David, who am I, God, that you would choose me? Gideon, how can I save Israel? I'm the weakest. Mary, Paul, who was the chief of sinners. Jesus uses the humble. Why? Because it's the poor in spirit that inherit the kingdom. It's the poor in spirit that God chooses to use. And I'm reminded as we close this morning of the story uh, of the lady that was caught in adultery. If you remember, she was on the ground too. Her face buried in the dirt in absolute utter shame. And they're about to throw stones at her. They're accusing her. Of course, where's the man in this scenario, right? Takes two to tango. And so here she is in the dirt, buried in shame, in a place of utter spiritual bankruptcy. And Jesus comes to her. And you know the story. Jesus gets down to where she's at. And I don't know what unfolded. I don't know what he wrote in the sand. I don't know what conversations happened between her and him as he maybe whispers in her ear. But here's what I do know, is that we see this woman whose face is buried in shame, who's spiritually bankrupt, who's utterly dependent upon the mercy of another. We see Jesus having her step up. He looks her in the eyes. I don't know if he, when she's down there in the dirt, if he kind of gently lifts up her chin so that she can look into his eyes. And see the mercy and the grace and the love of Jesus. And Jesus speaks to her and he says, your sins are forgiven. You're looking for mercy. You're looking for grace. I'm right here. I'm right here for you. And then he says this to her. He says, now go and sin no more. 
You know, that lady, I'm sure, never forgot that moment. And I think sometimes what we can do as Christians is that we can, quote unquote, believe the right things. I got my golden ticket to heaven. And Jesus wants us, as those who follow Jesus, never to leave the place where we understand that we are spiritually destitute, that we are bankrupt and in need of the mercy of another. I don't know about you. There's not a day goes by that I don't wrestle or struggle or deal with the impact of sin in my life, around my life, and I'm constantly having to come back to the place of Jesus. I'm in need of your mercy. I'm in need of your grace. I'm in need of your empowerment. I'm in need of you to help me not just overcome sin, but to live the kind of life that you call me to live in the world that's so broken. And I think today Jesus is here, maybe for the first time, just like that lady, lifting up your chin, looking into his eyes, recognizing all oh, the mercy, the grace, the beauty, the kindness, the long-suffering of Jesus. Some of you in the room this morning, you're, you're, you're in that place of, man, I failed him one more time. God, why is life such a struggle? And Jesus is beckoning you back to this place of we're poor in spirit. He doesn't leave us there, but we never move beyond it. We're to walk always remembering the grace and the mercy that we've received through Jesus. And it ought to change how we relate to others. And so here's what I want us to do. If we could stand together, we're going to sing a song together. But before we do, I want to give you an opportunity just to respond. Because uh, I really believe that Jesus is here and he's, some of us, you know, he's putting his finger on our heart. He's saying, hey, I'm welcoming you to this place. And maybe for the first time, maybe you've never kind of given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about it or seen it this way. And you've been trying so hard in your own strength. I'm going to be a good person. And you fail again. I'm going to try and measure up. And you fail again. And Jesus is here to say, you're spiritually bankrupt like every other person in this room, but I'm here today to give you mercy, give you grace. In fact, the Bible doesn't say you're just forgiven. The Bible actually describes it this way. You're adopted as a son and daughter into the kingdom, into the family of God. You're a new creation. That's what Jesus does for you. And so he's standing here today and he's like knocking on the door of your heart going, hey, will you come? Will you come? Will you come? So I want you just to close your eyes for a minute. And if that's you this morning and you're just sensing God's grace, God's mercy to you today, would you just slip your hand up and say, I want to receive that forgiveness. I want to receive that goodness. Come on, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, your word tells us that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us for all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, there's forgiveness, Lord, this morning. Lord, because of the grace of Jesus that you died on the cross, took our sin, rose from the dead, conquering death and sin and hell, Lord, so that we could be free and adopted as your children. And so, Lord, for those that are responding this morning, Lord, we join with the angels of heaven in celebrating new life, new creation, adopted into the kingdom of God. Lord, there's others of us this morning that, Lord, we're still wrestling. Lord, we've been saved for maybe a long time, but Lord, 
Lord, we need to be reminded that the place from which we live is a place of utter and absolute dependence upon your grace and your mercy. And Lord Jesus, as we live from that place, you empower us to overcome. You empower us to be the people that you've called us to be, to be your representatives, your ambassadors here on earth. And so Lord, as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, let the words, but let Lord, your word penetrate our hearts. And Lord, would you transform and change us to be more and more like Jesus. Amen.